0: Welcome to this reading of the Sioux City Journal for Friday, January 5th. I'm your reader, Mark Bedford. We'll start with the weather. Today will be cloudy with a high of 38 degrees. Tonight will be cloudy and possibly a little snow late with a low of 26 degrees. Saturday there may be a little morning snow with a high of 33 degrees. And now we switch over to local and state news stories. Mayor refutes casino report. Ho-Chunks Morgan argues study Kill's bid for Bellevue Racetrack. Joe Dejka reports. Bellevue and Sarpy County should not be denied the benefits of hosting a horse racing track and casino, Bellevue Mayor Rusty Hike said Tuesday. Hike said the proposed Bellevue Downs racetrack and casino in his community would help pull revenues from neighboring Iowa casinos and fit well with an entertainment district that city officials hope to create featuring a proposed water park. Hike said the gambling facility would likely generate more revenue than a state consultant estimated and would help maximize tax revenue for the state, city, and county. A consultant's report prepared for the Nebraska Racing and Gaming Commission forecast that a Bellevue facility would generate about $60.7 million in revenue, but some of the revenue would be pulled from existing racetrack casinos. The Warhorse Casino under construction in Omaha would lose $24.7 million if the Bellevue facility were allowed, the report said. Lance Morgan, chief executive officer of Ho-Chunk, Inc., the parent company of Warhorse, said last week state law prohibits approving new racetrack casinos if they have a detrimental impact on the existing market. This study kills Bellevue, Morgan said. Warhorse, the economic development arm of the Winnebago Tribe of Nebraska, is developing racetrack casinos in Omaha, Lincoln, and South Sioux City in partnership with the Nebraska Horsemen's Benevolent and Protective Association. Kino operator John Hassett, who applied to the commission to license the proposed Bellevue Racetrack and Casino, disagrees with Warhorse's reading of the law. He said his casino would increase overall state revenues and his track would race quarter horses, so it wouldn't compete with thoroughbred tracks. Hassett notes the police report estimates that there's a pool of 500 to 1,000 Nebraska-bred quarter horses that could race, sufficient for a quarter horse racing industry. The quarter horse racetrack will be a unique draw, he said. We expect it to be very popular with the public because quarter horse racing provides a faster paced race experience. The state report, however, said Nebraska has no need for additional horse racing tracks beyond the ones already licensed. Only Fauner Park in Grand Island offers a full racing schedule, it said. A proposed track in Ogallala would race quarter horses. Voters in 2020 approved a ballot initiative linking casino development to racing licenses. That means that anyone who wants to build a casino in Nebraska, other than the six existing racing license holders, must win state approval for a racetrack. Currently, there are six licensed racetracks eligible for casinos. Legacy Downs in Lincoln, Fauner Park in Grand Island, Horseman's Park in Omaha, Atokad in South Sioux City, Fair Play Park in Hastings, and Columbus Exposition and Racing in Columbus. Hike said the proposed Bellevue Racetrack and Casino would complement a year-round indoor-outdoor water park that city officials are studying and hope to develop in an entertainment district, he said. The district would be located on one of the corners of U.S. 75 and 34, he said. The racetrack, casino, and water park would have the potential to further attract hotels, restaurants, and other entertainment options, he said. Bellevue and Sarpy County should not be denied the benefits of hosting a facility, Hike said. Situated along the border with Iowa, the city's location provides a unique opportunity to pull revenue from southwest Iowa, northwest Missouri, Cass County, Nebraska, and Sarpy County, which has a population of over 200000 he said. Bellevue officials say that other market studies estimate the Bellevue Racetrack and Casino revenue at between $102 million and 120, pardon me, $112 million. A crime of opportunity. Leaving car running on winter mornings could lead to theft, Caitlin Yamada reports from Sioux City. In the winter, warming the car before heading off to work can be convenient, but leaving it unattended creates an opportunity for car theft, Sioux City Police warn. When temperatures start dipping, many people begin the process of starting their cars before getting ready for work. While many modern cars come with auto start, requiring just a few clicks on the remote, other cars require the keys to be left in the ignition. While the weather this year has been unseasonably warm, people are still warming up their cars and leaving them unattended. On December 14th, Sioux City Police Sergeant Tom Gill said four vehicles were stolen between 5 a.m. and 7 a.m. Each one was left running with the keys in the ignition, Gill said. In the last year, 306 cars were stolen in Sioux City, some due to people leaving their cars running unmonitored. There were 284 cars stolen in 2022, 233 stolen in 2021, and 273 stolen in 2020. Gill said most vehicles were recovered within 24 hours with minimal damage. If someone who stole the vehicle is planning on keeping the vehicle for a while, they will remove the plates and make cosmetic changes to it, such as painting it, Gill said. Another reason the vehicle could be damaged is if the police officer chooses to pursue the vehicle. He said officers, especially at night, are vigilant for stolen vehicles in Sioux City. He said stealing a vehicle is a Class D felony, which fits the Sioux City Police's Police's policy for conducting a pursuit. At night, if the driver does not comply with stop attempts by police, it will most likely become a pursuit, Gill said. The damage comes from a vehicle pursuit because the vehicle ends up crashing or hitting a parked car, he said. Nine times out of ten, the vehicle will crash. He said the reasons behind the thefts vary, but more often than not it is just a crime of opportunity. Crimes of opportunities are not planned and are committed in the spur of the moment. Many of the vehicles were stolen because they left running while parked on the street. Some stolen cars in Sioux City are used to commit other crimes. Gill said two times stolen cars were used to transport stolen goods out of stores. The store had them on camera pushing a shopping cart full of items out the door without paying for them, loaded them up in a car and took off, and the license plate was clearly visible on camera, Gill said. Well, that car had been stolen, so they didn't care if they saw the license. Gill said some of the more concerning car thefts include ones where there were children or weapons in the vehicle. He recalled two separate occasions where someone put their child in the car, went to get other items out of the house, and seconds later the vehicle was gone. He said the person stealing the car most likely did not realize there was going to be a child in the car, and both times the cars were recovered quickly. In both, the vehicle was found pretty close to where it was stolen, he said. Gill said it is surprising how many people leave weapons in their vehicles. He said often if a vehicle is stolen with a weapon inside of it, the gun will be used in the commission of a crime. For example, Gill said a man forgot to close his garage door one night with the keys and two weapons in his truck. It was stolen and later a convenience store was robbed at gunpoint with the stolen gun and the vehicle was found a few blocks away. Gill recommends people stay with their cars when warming them up if they do not have an auto start. Make sure to lock unattended vehicles and keep weapons out of unmonitored vehicles. Motor vehicle theft by population has steadily increased in the United States since 2019, with 721,852 cars reported stolen in 2022, according to the Federal Bureau of Of Investigation Uniform Crime Reporting Program. The data also shows that motor theft by population in Iowa has decreased since 2020. The American Automobile Association, AAA, states it's a myth that cars need to run for a few minutes before taking off in the winter. The organization recommends allowing the car to idle only for the time it takes to fasten your seatbelt or clear snow and ice from the windshield. This ensures that lubricating oil gets to all of the engine's vital parts. Driving the car normally and avoiding a hard acceleration brings the engine to a warmer temperature faster and also reduces wear and exhaust emissions, according to AAA. And now a couple of stories about national politics coming to Sioux City. Noam accuses Haley of flip-flopping, suggests DeSantis caved during COVID-19 pandemic. Jared McNett reports from Sioux City. While rallying for former President Donald Trump in Sioux City Wednesday night, South Dakota Governor Christy Noam called out a fellow governor and a former governor who are both running in the 2024 GOP primary. Noam, who was speaking to a crowd of about 500 people, at the Country Celebrations Event Center accused Nikki Haley, the Governor of South Carolina from 2011 to 2017, of flip-flopping on a number of issues, such as support of Trump, and suggested Florida Governor Ron DeSantis caved to lockdown pressures during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020. I've heard so many different versions of Nikki Haley and met so many different versions of Nikki Haley. I don't know who she is, Noam said. When she was governor, she said she was not going to support raising the gas tax, and then she introduced and passed one of the largest gas tax increases that there ever was. She said China was our friend, that we should be inviting them to invest in our country and build new partnerships with them. Now she's decided that they're our enemy. She said she was never going to run for president against President Trump, and now she's running for president against President Trump. She defends you and then she attacks you. Wednesday, the Daily Beast reported that Haley said she never raised a gas tax in her state. She then went on to criticize Trump for proposing a $0.25 per gallon hike in the federal gas tax in 2018. With respect to DeSantis, Noam, who served as governor of South Dakota since 2019, said the two-term Florida governor rewrote the history of how he responded to the pandemic. Earlier in the day, DeSantis gave a speech at Johnny Mars family restaurant in Sioux City and stated Florida had lower suicide rates than California in 2020 and 2021, in part because of less restrictive lockdown measures. Ron DeSantis closed his businesses down, he closed his beaches down, Noam said. When it was hard, challenging, political pressure, in times when everything mattered and your constitutional freedoms were threatened, Ron DeSantis caved to the pressure, and we just can't afford to put someone as leader of the free world that caves in to political pressure. Data from July 2021 showed South Dakota was 10th among U.S. states for COVID deaths per 100,000 people. Jim Mendenhall, a Trump supporter from Salix, Iowa, who attended the rally, said he thought DeSantis was more of a rhino or Republican in name only than he would like. I thought maybe he'd be a good vice president, but now I think we need to have a conservative person in there with Trump and not someone who fights with him, Mendenhall said. As for why he was all in for the former president, Mendenhall said Trump's tenure was very good for America and all the American people. To try and draw a contrast between Trump and DeSantis and Haley, Noam said the former was the only honest candidate in the GOP primary. There's only one person that I trust to tell me the truth and to actually follow through and do what he says he's going to do, and that's President Trump, Noam said. Noam decried other politicians who think they're better than the average voter, but said Trump, who is a billionaire, doesn't think he's better than anybody. He knows who he is. He's confident in who he is. He came down a golden escalator because that's the way he is. He never pretended to be anybody other than who he is, and he doesn't think he's better than any of you, Noam said. At the start of the event, the Trump campaign said the former president, who lost the Iowa caucuses to Ted Cruz in 2016, would see a historic victory on caucus night in 12 days. For such a victory to happen, though, Noam said, Iowans needed to be bold and support President Trump. You are literally determining the future of the United States of America, Noam said. You look at where we were five years ago compared to where we are today. You could never have convinced me a country could change so fast. The issues we're fighting, the lawlessness, the destruction, the tearing apart of our country. It's happened so quickly, and it's because people did not stand up, and more importantly, I need you to decide tonight to be people who say yes when you leave those doors." With the caucuses set for Monday, January 15th, Iowa polling averages show Trump with commanding leads over DeSantis, Haley, and Ohio businessman Vivek Ramaswamy. At the same time, Trump is navigating 91 felony counts in four criminal cases in Washington, D.C., New York, Florida, and Georgia. In the Georgia case, in which Trump faces charges of violating the state's anti-racketeering law by attempting to illegally overturn the results of the 2020 election, several of Trump's co-defendants took guilty pleas. Attorney Jenna Ellis, who was a part of Trump's re-election team, pled guilty to one felony count of aiding and abetting false statements and writings. Her plea came after fellow attorneys Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesbrough pled guilty. DeSantis slams Trump, Haley, during campaign stop at popular Sioux City Diner. Jared McNutt reports from Sioux City. At a presidential campaign event in Sioux City Wednesday afternoon, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis wasted no time going after two of his challengers in the 2024 GOP primary, former President Donald Trump and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. Trump's running on his issues Haley's running on her donor's issues. I'm running on your issues, the two-term Republican governor told a crowd of about 100 people within the first minute of his remarks at Johnny Marr's family restaurant. DeSantis sprinkled criticisms of Trump, in particular, throughout the 40-plus minutes he spent speaking to and taking questions from patrons of the popular diner. DeSantis accused Trump who hasn't appeared in a GOP primary debate and has maintained a lighter campaign schedule in Iowa than his opponents, of making a mockery of this whole process by not showing up and answering people's questions. He doesn't think he needs to, DeSantis said. DeSantis also said Trump, who endorsed his gubernatorial run in 2018, views himself as a ruler that you're supposed to serve. It's not how I view it. I'm a servant of the people," DeSantis said. While talking about using every form of legal voting possible, DeSantis appeared to criticize Trump who had previously attacked early voting and repeatedly pushed stolen election claims the Justice Department has alleged are false. I think too many Republicans have told people, well, just only vote on election day. That's the only thing that's good. The problem is you can't be banking votes up to that point. Some states have early voting for like a month. I don't like that. I don't think that's how it should be, don't get me wrong. But if voting is open, you tell your people to go get their votes in. Through January 3rd, 2024, DeSantis is second in an average of Iowa polls found on the 538 data analysis website. Trump sits at 50%, while DeSantis is at 18.4%. Haley's average is at 15.7%. Ohio businessman Vivek Ramazwamy is averaging 6%. Haley and DeSantis will appear at a debate on the Drake University campus in Des Moines on Wednesday, January 10th. Trump qualified for the debate as well, but is instead appearing at a Fox News town hall, which is being held at the same time as the DeSantis-Haley debate. The Iowa caucuses are set for Monday, January 15, 2024. Earlier in the day, DeSantis visited Council Bluffs and had an event scheduled in Sioux Center following the Sioux City stop. In December 2023, DeSantis's campaign reported it had visited all 99 counties in Iowa. DeSantis' most recent stop in Iowa's fourth-largest city echoed the December trip he made to open a campaign office in town. During DeSantis' time at the restaurant, he again raised the possibility of President Joe Biden being swapped out for California Governor Gavin Newsom or another Democratic politician stated Florida had lower suicide rates than California during the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic because of less restrictive lockdown measures, and touted school choice legislation he signed into law. Per the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, California's suicide rate in 2020 was 10 per 100,000 people, for 4,144 total. In 2021, the number was 10.1 per 100,000 people, or 4,148 altogether. Those figures for Florida were 13.2%, pardon me, 13.2 per 100,000 in 2020, or 3,135 total, and 14 per 100,000 in 2021, or 3,351 people. As states such as Florida and Iowa have passed private school assistance legislation, those opposed to the new laws have sought legal action. In November 2023, Education Week, a nonprofit news organization, reported, Critics of the rapidly growing array of private school choice policies are increasingly turning to state courts to register their objections on constitutional grounds. Iowa's educational savings accounts are being phased in over a three-year period and allow families to use public funds to pay for private school tuition. The state approved 18,893 applications for the program for the 2023-24 school year. That number exceeded legislative predictions for the program's first year. Iowa's Legislative Services Agency predicted around 14,000 applications would be approved in the first year, for a total cost of $106.9 million. And now we turn to national and world news. Several shot at school. Suspect is found dead. At least one victim, a 6th grader, is killed. From Perry, Iowa. A 17-year-old opened fire at a small-town Iowa high school before classes resumed on the first day after the winter break, killing a 6th grader and wounding five other people Thursday, as students barricaded in offices, ducked into classrooms, and fled in panic. The suspect, a student at the school in Perry, died of what investigators believe is a self-inflicted gunshot wound, an Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation official said. Authorities said one of the five people wounded was an an administrator, later identified by his alma mater as Perry High School Principal Dan Marburger. Authorities identified the shooter as Dylan Butler, 17, but provided no information about a possible motive. Two friends and their mother said Butler was quiet and bullied for years. Perry has about eight thousand residents and is about forty miles northwest of Des Moines. The high school and middle school are connected. Authorities said Butler had a shotgun and a handgun. Mitch Mortvet, the state investigator—pardon me, the state investigation division's assistant director—said at a news conference that authorities also found a pretty rudimentary improvised explosive device and rendered it safe. The suspect's motive is being investigated, and authorities are looking into social media posts he made," Mortvets added. Perry High School senior Ava Augustus said she was awaiting a counselor in a school office when she heard three shots. Unable to flee through a small window, she and others barricaded the door and were ready to throw things if necessary. And then we hear, he's down, you can go out, she said through tears. And I run, and you can just see glass everywhere blood on the floor. I get to my car and they're taking a girl out of the auditorium who had been shot in her leg. Three gunshot victims were being treated at Iowa Methodist Medical Center in Des Moines, a spokesperson said. Others were taken to a second hospital, a spokesperson for Mercy One Des Moines Medical Center confirmed. Mortvet said one person was in critical condition, but the injuries didn't appear to be life-threatening. The others were stable, he said. President Joe Biden and U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland were briefed on the shooting. Mass shootings across the U.S. have long brought calls for stricter gun laws from gun safety advocates, and Thursdays did within hours. That idea has been a non-starter for many Republicans, particularly in rural GOP-leaning states like Iowa. Israel lays out vague plan for Gaza. Military strikes strike flattens home, killing a dozen people, mostly children. From Rafah in the Gaza Strip Israel's defense minister on Thursday laid out his vision for the next phase of the war in Gaza, describing how Israeli forces would shift to an apparently scaled-down new combat approach in northern Gaza, while continuing to fight Hamas in the south of the territory for as long as necessary. Ahead, pardon me, Ahead of a visit by the U.S. Secretary of State, Yoav Gallant also outlined a proposal for how Gaza would be run once Hamas is defeated, with Israel keeping security control while an undefined Israeli guided Palestinian body runs day-to-day operation, day-to-day administration, and the U.S. and other countries oversee rebuilding. Israel is under heavy international pressure to spell out a post-war vision. But so far has not done so. The United States has pressed Israel to shift to lower-intensity military operations in Gaza that more precisely target Hamas. After nearly three devastating months of bombardment and ground assaults, the vagueness of many of Gallant's provisions made it difficult to assess how much they mesh with the U.S. calls. An Israeli strike Thursday flattened a home in Muwassi, a small rural strip on Gaza's southern coastline that Israel's military previously declared a safe zone. The blast killed at least 12 people. Palestinian hospital officials said, The dead included a man and his wife, seven of their children, and three other children ranging in age from 5 to 14, according to a list of the dead who arrived at Nasser Hospital in nearby Khan Yunis. There was no immediate response from Israel's military. Israel's campaign in Gaza has killed more than 22,400 people, more than two-thirds of them women and children, according to the health ministry in the Hamas-run territory. The ministry's count does not differentiate between civilians and combatants. Israel vowed to destroy Hamas after its October 7th attack. Much of northern Gaza, which troops invaded two months ago, is flattened beyond recognition. Some 85% of Gaza's 2.3 million people have been driven from their homes and squeezed into smaller slivers of the territory. Israel's siege of the territory has caused a humanitarian crisis, with a quarter of the population starving because not enough supplies are entering, according to the UN. Islamic State Group Claims Suicide Bombing U.S. sends diplomat to Middle East amid growing escalations, from Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. The Islamic State group claimed responsibility Thursday for two suicide bombings targeting a commemoration for an Iranian general slain in a 2020 U.S. drone strike, the worst militant attack to strike Iran in decades as the wider Middle East remains on edge. Experts who followed the group confirmed that the statement circulated online among jihadists came from the extremists, who likely hoped to take advantage of the chaos gripping the region amid Israel's war on Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Wednesday's attack in Kerman killed at least 84 people and wounded an additional 284. Meanwhile, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken headed to the Middle East for the fourth time in three months on a tour expected to focus largely on easing resurgent fears that the Israel-Hamas war could erupt into a broader conflict. With international criticism of Israel's operations in Gaza mounting, growing U.S. concerns about the endgame, and more immediate worries about a recent explosion in attacks in the Red Sea, Lebanon, Iran, and Iraq, Blinken will have a packed and difficult agenda. Russia and Ukraine trade long-range attacks. U.S. says North Korea provided Kremlin with missiles and launchers. Russia's defense ministry said Thursday its air defenses shot down 10 Ukrainian air-launched missiles over Crimea, and 10 over the Russian city of Belgorod, as both sides in the war pounded each other with long-range aerial strikes, while fighting on the front line is largely deadlocked. The White House, meanwhile, said U.S. intelligence officials determined that Moscow acquired ballistic missiles from North Korea and fired at least one of them into Ukraine on December 30th. It also is seeking close-range ballistic missiles from Iran, Washington said. One person was wounded by the falling debris of a downed aerial target in Sevastopol, a major port and the largest city on the Russian-annexed Crimean Peninsula. Regional Governor Mikhail Razvolskayev said. In Washington, U.S. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said recently declassified intelligence found that North Korea provided Russia with ballistic missile launchers and several ballistic missiles. Kirby said a Russia-Iran deal had not been completed, but he said the U.S. is concerned that Russian negotiations to acquire close-range ballistic missiles from Iran are actively advancing. Once again, you are listening to this reading of the Sioux City Journal for Friday, January 5th, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Continuing with national and world news stories, Trump lawyers pushed to hold Smith in contempt. From Washington, Former President Donald Trump's lawyers Pushed Thursday to have special counsel Jack Smith's team held in contempt, saying the prosecutors took steps to advance the 2020 election interference case against him in violation of a judge's order last month that put the case on hold. Trump's attorneys told U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin in Washington, D.C., that she should consider holding Smith and two of his prosecutors in contempt for turning over to the defense thousands of pages of evidence and an exhibit list, and for filing a motion, they said, teemed with partisan rhetoric and false claims. Trump appealed a ruling that rejected his claims that he is immune from prosecution, and Chutkin's December 13th order said the appeal automatically stays any further proceedings that would move this case towards trial or impose additional burdens of litigation on Trump. It does not appear to explicitly bar the filing of court papers or prohibit prosecutors from providing information to the defense. U.S. airstrike in Iraq kills militia commander from Baghdad. A U.S. airstrike on the the headquarters of an Iran-backed militia in central Baghdad, Iraq, killed a high-ranking militia commander Thursday, militia officials said. The strike comes amid fears that the Israel-Hamas war could spread in the region. It also coincides with a push by Iraqi officials for US-led coalition forces to leave the country. The Popular Mobilization Force, or PMF, a coalition of militias that is nominally under the control of the Iraqi military, announced its deputy head of operations in Baghdad, Abu Takwa, was killed as a result of brutal American aggression. A U.S. defense official who spoke on conditions of anonymity said Abu Taqwa was targeted because he was actively involved in attacks on U.S. personnel. Red Sea. An armed unmanned surface vessel launched from Houthi-controlled Yemen got within a couple of miles of U.S. Navy and commercial vessels in the Red Sea before detonating Thursday hours after a final warning was issued to the Iran-backed militia group to seize the attacks or face potential military action. Proud Boys Christopher Worrell, 52, a member of the Proud Boys extremist group who went on the run after his conviction in the January 6, 2021 attack at the U.S. Capitol, was sentenced Thursday to 10 years in prison. Labor Issue SpaceX sued a U.S. labor agency Thursday, a day after the agency accused the company of creating an impression that worker activities were under surveillance and unlawfully firing employees who penned a letter critical of CEO Elon Musk. Threats Michael Shapiro, 72, of Green Acres, Florida, was arrested Wednesday. Federal prosecutors said he threatened to kill U.S. Representative Eric Swalwell and his children in voicemails left at the California Democrats' Washington office last month. Bomb scares. Government buildings in several states were evacuated Thursday after bomb threats, causing disruptions for a second day in a row in some places. No explosives were found. And finally. Illinois. Five voters filed a petition Thursday seeking to bar former President Donald Trump from the Illinois Republican primary election ballot, claiming he is ineligible to hold office because he urged the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. Now we turn to sports news, starting with the NFL. Harbaugh brothers soaring again with Michigan Ravens. Noah Trister reports from Owings Mills, Maryland. Eleven years after turning the Super Bowl into one of football's most memorable family reunions, John and Jim Harbaugh are again at the forefront of the sport. This time, the two coaches are chasing different prizes and won't be in each other's way. Darn Harbaugh's Baltimore Ravens have the NFL's best record and have clinched the top seed in the AFC playoffs. Jim Harbaugh's Michigan team faces Washington on Monday night in Houston for college football's national title, a game John said he's planning to attend. I've never seen either of them have as much fun with their team as they're having now, said Joni Crean, their younger sister. It brings a pure smile to my face. The family should be used to the publicity by now. At the end of the 2012 season, John's Ravens defeated Jim's San Francisco 49ers in the Super Bowl. Jim took over the Michigan program after the 2014 season and now has the Wolverines playing for the national championship. Of course, Jim has also been as polarizing as ever this season, suspended once by his school and made allegations of recruiting violations, and then by the Big Ten during the fallout from Michigan's sign-stealing scandal. Through all of that, John Harbaugh was quick to support his brother, saying at one point that Jim had come through this thing with flying colors, and that an investigation into Jim's phones and computers had turned up nothing of substance. When Jim was suspended for a road game against Maryland, John had him over to watch. Lately, the mood at Michigan has been far more celebratory. After Monday's semifinal victory over Alabama at the Rose Bowl, Jack Harbaugh and his wife Jackie, the parents of Jim, John, and Joni, did an exuberant, endearing interview for WXYZ, a TV station in Detroit. Jack said at a key moment in the game, he and Jackie superstitiously traded seats, That is so classic of them. It probably did make the difference, John Harbaugh said Wednesday. My dad is fun, but he's a little bit polished. He's been interviewed before. My mom, you put a microphone in front of her face or you hang out with her for a couple of minutes, you don't even have to ask her what she thinks. She's going to tell you what she thinks. Jack was an assistant coach at Michigan under Bo Schembechler, and Jim played quarterback there during the mid-1980s. John was a defensive back at Miami of Ohio. The family's saying, who's got it better than us, is one Jim has made somewhat famous, and John has worn a Ravens-colored shirt with that question on it at practice. In other NFL news, fire at House of Dolphins Hill started by child from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. A fire at the $6.9 million home owned by Miami Dolphins receiver Tyreek Hill was started by a child playing with a cigarette lighter in a bedroom, a fire official said Thursday. It was an accidental fire, Davy Fire Marshal Robert Taylor told the Associated Press. Taylor did not provide the age of the child or the amount of damage caused by the fire. He said the investigation is now closed. The house is located in Southwest Ranches, which is about 30 miles northwest of Miami and was purchased by Hill in May 2022, shortly after the Kansas City Chiefs traded him to the Dolphins. Miami television station WSVN showed a large amount of black smoke coming from the roof as firefighters doused the house with water. Firefighters appeared to be working on the highest parts of the structure. Many of the bedrooms, a home theater, and a den were among the rooms upstairs, according to the property listing. R.B. Cook joins Ravens. Dalvin Cook is joining the Baltimore Ravens for a playoff run after being waived by the New York Jets. The move, confirmed by Cook's agents with LAA Sports and Entertainment to the Associated Press on Thursday, came after Cook cleared waivers and became a free agent. NFL Network first reported the decision by Baltimore to sign Cook, who agreed to part ways with New York on Tuesday. ESPN also reported Cook will be first added to the Ravens practice squad. The four-time Pro Bowl running back will be able to get familiar with the Ravens offense before the team opens its postseason during the AFC Divisional round in two and a half weeks. It was not immediately clear whether Cook would be available for Baltimore's regular season finale at home Saturday against Pittsburgh. And finally, Cowboys add two extra players, pardon me, two ex-players, Frisco, Texas. The Dallas Cowboys added two of their former players to the practice squad Thursday in offensive lineman Lyle Collins and linebacker Damian Wilson, who haven't played in 2023. Dallas also added two younger players in receiver, Racy McMath, and former Texas Tech running back, Sir Roderick Thompson. The Cowboys released receiver, Martavis Bryant, and three others from the practice squad to make room for the additions. The addition of Collins, who spent his first six seasons with the Cowboys, comes with left guard Tyler Smith dealing with a foot injury and left tackle Tyron. Smith battling a back issue that sidelined him two weeks ago against Miami. Tyron Smith also has missed games with knee and neck injuries. Meanwhile, in NBA news, unprecedented offensive show highlights night. There had never been a day in NBA history where five teams all scored at least 140 points. And there had never been a day where the league saw four teams all score at least 130 points in losses. That is until Wednesday when both events happened. Mark it down, January 3, 2024 was perhaps one of the oddest statistical nights the league has seen. Utah, Detroit, Indiana, Atlanta, and Cleveland all topped the 140-point mark. True, though some teams just had more fun than others. Just ask the four teams that also scored a ton of points on Wednesday but lost anyway. For the Pistons, Oklahoma City, Orlando, and Milwaukee scoring 130 points wasn't even enough to win. There was one previous instance of three teams scoring 130 in losses on the same day, that being April 10, 2019, when it happened to Utah, Sacramento, and Atlanta. Scoring has been up, really up, in the NBA this season, with teams averaging 115.5 points per game, the highest clip the league has seen since the average was 116.7 points in the 1969-70 season. The scores of note in those super high scoring Wednesday games, Utah beat Detroit 154 to 148 in overtime. Indiana beat Milwaukee 142 to 130. Atlanta beat Oklahoma City 141 to 138. Cleveland beat Washington 140 to 101. And Sacramento edged Orlando in double overtime 138 to 135. The previous record for teams scoring 140 or more points on the same day was was four, done on January 16th, 2019. The four teams to do it that day were Brooklyn, Houston, Golden State, and New Orleans. The Nets beat the Rockets 145 to 142. The Warriors beat the Pelicans 147 to 140. In Thursday's games, Bucks 125, Spurs 121. Giannis Antetokounmpo had 44 points and 14 rebounds, and Milwaukee overcame an electric performance by Victor Wembanyama on his t- 20th birthday to beat host San Antonio. Wembanyama had 27 points, and Devin Vassell led the Spurs with 34. Wembanyama's first meeting with Antetokounmpo was delayed by the French rookie's sprained ankle December 19th in Milwaukee, but it proved to be worth the wait. Nuggets 130, Warriors 127. Nikola Djokic hit a 40-footer as time expired, as Denver stunned Golden State after trailing by 18 points in the fourth quarter. Jokic had 34 points, 10 assists, and 9 rebounds. He tied it at 127 with a short jumper with 26 seconds left. And in other NBA stories, Giannis LBJ lead early All-Star voting from New York. Milwaukee's Giannis Antetokounmpo and the Los Angeles Lakers' LeBron James are the early leaders in fan voting for next month's All-Star game, the NBA said Thursday. Antetokounmpo had... 2,171,812 votes to lead all Eastern Conference frontcourt players, and James had 2,008,645 votes to lead all Western Conference frontcourt players. James is looking for a record 20th All-Star selection. He is currently tied with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar for the most in league history with 19. Fan voting counts for 50% of the formula used to select the All-Star starters. Media voting counts for another 25%, and voting by NBA players determines the other 25% of the formula. The league is reverting to the classic East versus West format for the All-Star game this year, with three front-court players and two guards in each starting lineup. Cavs Ricky Rubio, who stepped away from his playing career this season to concentrate on his mental health, retired. Nets. The NBA fined Brooklyn $100,000, marking the first time a team was sanctioned for violating the the league's player participation policy. Shaq. Shaquille O'Neal's number will be retired February 13th by the Orlando Magic, who will become the third NBA franchise to give that tribute to the four-time champion and Basketball Hall of Famer. O'Neal will be the first player to get a jersey number. He wore number 32 in Orlando, retired by the Magic. And the stat of the day, 10. In Miami's 110-96 victory Wednesday night over the Los Angeles Lakers, the Heat tied a franchise record with eight players scoring at least 10 points. In the NHL, Crosby's power play goal lifts pins. From Boston, Sidney Crosby scored on the power play to snap a third period tie and added two assists, lifting the Pittsburgh Penguins to a 6-5 win over the Boston Bruins on Thursday night. Rangers 4, Blackhawks 1. Artemi Panarin scored his team-best 24th goal. Vincent Trocek added three assists and host New York defeated Chicago. Sabres 6, Canadiens 1. Buffalo rookie Devin Levi made 32 saves in his first game at the Bell Center to help the Sabres beat Montreal. Blue Jackets 3, Flyers 2 in a shootout. Johnny Godrow scored in the shootout, Damon Severson and Jake Bean netted goals in the third period, and Columbus came back to win at Philadelphia. Lightning 4 Wild won. Defenseman Darren Radish scored his first two goals of the season, and Victor Hedman had a power play goal in Tampa Bay's road victory over injury-ravaged Minnesota. Flame 6 Predators 3 Connor Zeri, Blake Coleman, Rasmus Anderson, and Yegor Sharangovich each had a goal and an assist in Calgary's victory at Nashville. Blues two, Canucks one. Robert Thomas had a goal and an assist to lead St. Louis over visiting Vancouver. Avalanche five, Stars four in overtime. Nathan McKinnon scored his second goal at 3:40 of overtime as Colorado rallied from a two-goal deficit to beat Dallas on the road. Islanders 5, Coyotes 1. Bo Horvat scored twice, and Ilya Sorokin made 24 saves to help visiting New York beat Arizona. Panthers 4, Golden Knights 1. Hours after being named to the All-Storm roster, Sam Reinhardt had a goal and an assist as Florida won at Vegas. Mm-hmm. Kraken 4, Senators 1. Tomas Tatar and Andre Burakovsky scored 3 minutes 43 seconds apart late in the second period as host Seattle won its sixth straight. Jets 2, Sharks 1. Gabriel Villardi broke a tie on a power play at 3.14 of the third period. Connor, Helleb- Connor Hellebuke made 27 saves, and visiting Winnipeg beat San Jose. Red Wings 4, Kings 3 in a shootout. Robbie Fabry had two goals, and Patrick Kane scored the shootout winner to lead Detroit in Los Angeles. In other hockey news, Crosby named to 10th All-Star team. Sidney Crosby has been named an NHL All-Star for the 10th time as the league unveiled its initial rosters Thursday night for the event next month in Toronto. The Pittsburgh Penguins captain was one of the first 32 All-Stars chosen by the league's hockey operations department. One player from each team is picked, with others added by fan votes later. Tom Wilson, from the rival Washington Capitals, a Toronto native, was also picked and is an all-star for a second time. The Capitals had Wilson's dad, Kevin, deliver the news by video to him in front of his teammates. We will all be there to cheer you on, Wilson's dad said, and your 95-year-old Grampy will be so pumped when he hears the news. Reigning MVP Connor McDavid is Edmonton's Representative and league leading scorer Nikita Kucherov was picked from the Tampa Bay Lightning. Chicago Rookie of the Year frontrunner Connor Bedard, Colorado Center Nathan McKinnon, and defending champion Vegas Center Jack Eichel were also were chosen. Austin Matthews, the first player to 30 goals this season, is the first Maple Leafs player picked, though he'll almost certainly not be the home team's only representative. William Nylander is Toronto's leading scorer with 51 points. Brady Tkachuk was picked from the Ottawa Senators. All-Star Weekend takes place February 1st through 3rd. And the hockey stat of the day, 10-11. Evgeny Kuznetsov scored a goal and assist as the Washington Capitals lost to New Jersey Devils 6-3 on Wednesday night. Kuznetsov's night ended both a 10-game point drought and an 11-game goal-scoring drought. And we'll finish with a golf story from the PGA. Figala's 64 leads season opener. Doug Ferguson reports from Kapalua, Hawaii. Colin Murakawa already has won two majors and played in the opening session twice in the Ryder Cup. His opening tee shot Thursday at Kapalua felt as special as any moment. Long before Sahith Thigala rolled in his 10th birdie for a 9-under 64 to lead the century, the PGA Tour began a new year with a ceremony on the first tee. It featured a Hawaiian blessing and chants geared toward renewal and regrowth, with emphasis on the deadly Lahaina fires. Morokawa has a deep connection to Maui and hit the opening tee shot. Where it went, straight and so long it rolled through the fairway into the rough, was of little importance to him. As special as it's ever going to get, Morokawa said of the first of his sixty five shots on Thursday. I can talk about final rounds, last shots, first tee, final group, and those in the majors, but that was as big of an honor as I could have had. Not because it was the first tournament of the year, but because it was out here in Maui, everything that this week represents for me. It just means that much more. He played like it meant more, with six birdies and one eagle, when he carved a three-wood up to the elevated green for Eagle on the par-5 ninth. On this glorious day of surprisingly little wind and typical magnificent views, Morikawa had plenty of company. His 65 was the best of the day until Figala warmed up, starting the back nine with six straight birdies. He got up and down on the par-5 18th for one last birdie. That gave him a one-shot lead over Morikawa, FedEx Cup champion Victor Hovland, Sungae Im, Camilo Velez, and Jason Day. Thigala made his Kapalua debut last year by reaching the Tour Championship as a rookie. Now the field at the Century, for years limited only to PGA Tour winners from the previous year, has been expanded to winners and the top 50 in the FedEx Cup. Thigala would be there no matter what thanks to his win in Napa, California in September. The 59-player field is the largest ever for Kapalua, and they all had their way on a forgiving plantation course, missing its great defense with only a tropical breeze. Thigala still had to work, an 18-foot putt on number 10, a tee shot to two feet on the par 3 11th, and then his favorite, a 10-foot birdie on a 12th hole with so much slope and grain he wasn't sure how the putt was going to break. I just aimed it dead center and tried to hit it hard, he said. That settled me down a little bit more because I knew 13, 14, 15 were very gettable too. And he got them, capping his streak with a two-putt birdie from 20 feet on the par 5 15th. It felt that way for everyone. 18 players were at 67 or lower, and that was to be expected. The plantation course's biggest defense is the wind, and it laid down for much of the day. Even bad starts turned out well. Justin Rose went out in 40 and had six birdies on the back to salvage a 71. Jordan Spieth hit the first foul ball of the year, pushing his tee shot well right on the third hole into the tall native grasses, leading to a double bogey. He answered with nine birdies and was in the group at 7 under 66. That included Patrick Cantley, Xander Schoffel, and Scotty Scheffler, the two-time PGA Tour Player of the Year and number 1 Player in the World. I didn't have to struggle too much for pars, Scheffler said. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Friday, January 5th. I'm your reader, Mark Bedford. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thanks for listening.